Hello, 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 my dear audience. I'm Peter Resnick, and welcome to the Dr. Peter Resnick's Toolbox. It's nice to be back. Two weeks ago, I promised you that the following Tuesday, I would have a guest, Vladimir Engert. Many of you already know of him or heard him speak. We had him uh, many times on this show. Vladimir and I intended to have a conversation on death and dying, a subject that many people are occupied by, but very often uncomfortable to talk about. Unfortunately, I had to cancel the live show and the studio rerun one of my earlier shows because both Vladimir and I had to go to a funeral. Yeah, that, that day, Tuesday, March 1st, we may talk about this event later. But first, I would like to read to you a paragraph from the first chapter of a memoir written by a medical doctor, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, The Wheel of Life. Dr. Kubler-Ross was a pioneer of exploration of the process of dying, a person who single-handedly changed the world the way the world viewed death and dying and the way the world treated people who are dying. She is the one who started hospices, hospice movement. Here's what she wrote. Let me read to you. From where I sit today in the flower-filled living room of my home in Scottsdale, Arizona, the past 70 years of my life look extraordinary. As a little girl raised in Switzerland, I could never, not in the wildest dreams, have predicted one day winding up the world famous author of On Death and Dying, a book whose exploration of life's final passage threw me into the center of medical and theological controversy. Nor could I have imagined that afterwards I would spend the rest of my life explaining that death does not exist. Ladies and gentlemen, I personally buried both of my parents, but unfortunately was not speaking to either of them when they took their last breath. I read about death and dying in the books. Dr. Kubler-Ross sat next to thousands of people who were dying and escorted them to the door into beyond. She also recorded 20,000 near-death experiences. But remember, near-death is not death. Very few people have the ability to and the privilege to follow those who actually die, or what we call die, and communicate with them from the other side. My today's guest, ladies and gentlemen, Vladimir Angert, is one of those people. Vladimir, welcome. Hey, I didn't realize that was my, my cue. Hello. <laughs> Can you hear me clearly? Uh, yes. I'm on my iPad, which is awesome. For those, for those of you who are listening to today uh, to Vladimir speak for the first time, Vlad, if you don't mind, in few words, 
give us an idea of what you do in life, and then we'll go to the subject of today's show. Well, I do a lot of things in life, but uh, I chose to, about 23 years ago, I chose to... Uh, a little louder, if you don't mind, because I don't know... Can you, can you hear me now? Yes, more or less. Hold on a second. Hold on. Yeah, because I, I'm not sure how well the audience can hear, because can I hear? don't hear... What about now? Is it better? Now? Oh, yes. <laughs> My volume was down. <laughs> okay, go ahead. About 23 years ago, I started a practice as a, as a full-time practitioner. Uh, one of my abilities is uh, I'm able to be a, a medium between the unseen world and this one. What that really means is, uh, for those that don't know that we're related, I've been speaking to your grand, to your father since I'm 12, but that didn't really mean that I'm able to speak to others. I just I just thought, oh well, he's just around me. Uh, this is what I do. This is what I'm able to do. But um, as a young adult in my 30s, I started to practice as a medium for work, and then of course my abilities progressed, and I was yeah, I'm able to do other things now that I'm officially 54. So, um, I'm, uh, I'm a psychic medium healer, but that's just a description increment of what's possible. It doesn't, it doesn't define what I do really. So my, some of my gifts allow me to be able to make observations, uh, concrete observations for people and their well and their emotional, physical, spiritual health. And I'm able to connect to the other side only if it's necessary. I don't lead with mediumship. It's unnecessary. Thank you. And I have to add for those again who hear you for the first time, I'm Vlad's uncle. So I know that <laughs> from the age of four, I think he was able to know what was happening in other rooms, in other apartments. And that's where all this started. But now, uh, this is a very interesting subject on death and dying. We always talk about healing, uh, living everyday life to its fullest. But this is a subject, as I mentioned, till Elizabeth Kubler-Ross had the courage to speak, uh, people would say quietly, like, like also, I remember in, in Russia, people would say, this person is a very nice person, but he has tuberculosis quietly. So this person is dying and this poor person would be left alone, dying, feeling miserable and nobody would visit this person very often because it was, they, people didn't know how to relate to a person who is dying. You, as I understand, and I don't think Vlad, that you and I spoke much about it, uh, um, but you have the opportunity from my understanding, as a person so-called dies or the body stops functioning, you have the opportunity to see and follow them beyond this physical reality. Would you, would you say like when you first time had the experience? Um, I can't tell you specifically where I was able to see the transition 
but um, my first interaction was with your father. And uh, I was in military academy, and he had passed, and um, I was sleeping, and someone came to wake me up, and I, and I knew that he, he had gone. But I did have a, a very specific, vivid um, uh, opportunity with your mother, which was very interesting. It was the first time I ever had that reality, that kind of experience. And I had already had a practice as a, as a medium. She had left her body in a, I think, a, a facility. And I saw her. My mother asked me, do you see her? And I said, I see her, but she's confused. She was standing by her gravesite. And she said, um, why are all these people here? I don't even have my lipstick. Yeah, I remember. I remember you told me this. Yes. And, and I realized, I realized, oh, where is my coat? So I realized that she, she didn't realize that she was gone mm -hmm. because she had such an incredible attachment to the human experience and her suffering. So uh, that's really could be a segue into our conversation because we live, we, we leave the way we live. Oh, she was always. I don't mean to make her the topic of our conversation, but she was always waiting for the Nazis, holding her breath. And she left. She lost her breath. She, told, she choked. So uh, we, we, we leave the way we live. It's 100%. 100%. Uh, I mean, I don't want to make it. It's not a public notice, but I just lost my father. He died Monday. We buried, buried him on Tuesday. And... Uh, I just wrote something to someone, and I opened it so I can read it to you. I wrote it to a rabbi friend of mine. I said, the emotional attachment to the physical person overshadows knowing that he is more powerful in soul form. The flashes of random memories take up the space of the intermittent spiritual comfort. Having to trust the unknown and not resorting to the conditioned behavior is a struggle. In order to stay in the unseen, you have to overcome the physical and consistently stay in the value of the spiritual. Once they leave, they're more powerful. You know, unfortunately, unfortunately uh, majority of people, once they see the physical body being lowered into, into the ground, they don't see what you see. Right. So, uh, I think that it will be very helpful and hopeful for people to hear you and to explain what 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 happens. I think you prearranged this to, because this is a healing process for me in order to be able to speak about it. So I really appreciate it. It's so it's so interesting that we chose this topic, and I just it's lost my father. Did not know that your father will move on. Of course, of course, it doesn't it doesn't take away from the hardship. It doesn't take away from the fact that he struggled, that he suffered, that um, he's no longer here. You know, I look at his pictures and. He was a vibrant, full of life young man. Rebuilt buildings, did built furniture, danced, boxed, did all kinds of things. You know, and he didn't do them halfway. He did them all the way. 
And uh, so that doesn't, it's not, what I realized is, it's not that mediumship and being able to see the unseen or the soul world is, gives people relief. It gives them the possibility, it provides them the possibility that it doesn't end. Because in the process of a session, people really understand that it's not me making up airy-fairy stories. You know, um, uh, it's, it's very factual. Souls are very factual, very concrete. They don't make things up. They say things that have continuity, and they say things only that relate to the person that's sitting in front of me. So um, if I don't know Uncle Joe, I can't say anything about him. So then... What happens is so what happens is they um, they say concrete things only that you can relate to. In other words, if uh, if your mother were here, she would say, "Hey, do you know you remember our trip to Seattle, for instance?" So my my point is. Doing mediumship is not the answer to spiritual growth. That's the confusion in today's world. You know, all these high-profile mediums write books because they have a great PR firm or they get on shows. It's not resolved. A disembodied soul is just a disembodied soul of a relative. It doesn't mean they're an elevated angel or some sort of spiritual guide or something. If we don't have a connection to, to God, to the consistent flow of energy that sustains our soul, and all we do is want to speak to the ones that have passed, they, they, they're gone. That's why they left, because their process is over. So they don't, you don't need to ask them or disturb them. Going to mediums and being dependent on mediumship is, is inappropriate, consciously, emotionally inappropriate, and spiritually inappropriate. When you say they're gone, they're finished, let me, say and tell me if I'm uh, right according to you, uh, it's not that they are gone. They are gone for this physical material world and they continue their process of growing, but, but they pick up there from where they left off in this life. So they don't suddenly become, let's say, somebody who was a murderer becomes Mother Teresa there. Is that yeah. right? I always used to make a joke. If Uncle Joe wasn't very bright in this world, he didn't become a rocket scientist when he went to spirit. Right. I, I mean, Uncle Joe, I don't mean to offend anybody whose uncle's name is Joe. but just, <laughs> okay. So my daughter said something very interesting. My eight-year-old said something to my five-year-old. My five-year-old was crying for her grandfather. And um, Emma said to her, don't worry. Dieta, as they referred to him, took off his costume, and now he's a soul. It's a fact. We're wearing our costumes here. It's like Purim or Halloween. We choose the costume that we, we, we decide to display to the rest of the world and the mask. And our mask alters itself based on our understanding. The broader our minds, the broader our understanding, the broader our our features change, you teach morphology, so our, our structure changes based on the, our spiritual process and our corrective process. The more we're willing to embrace the fact that we're a soul, well, then we, when we move into the soul reality, he's so much more powerful now, my father. I feel his, his, his like, thick energy, like, 
I feel it next to me. But the moment I get sucked into the emotional, my dad's gone, I feel like you know, the physical aspect of him is gone, that I can't call him or show him a video that I watched or share something with it, it sucks me into it. So the struggle is just like the struggle between believing that there's a God and that there isn't mm-hmm. for people who live uh, that, in that dividedness. When you really understand that the unseen world is right here with us, it's not up there, it's not in heaven or in hell, it's right here. It's three feet above eye level. It's literally, they're literally right here. They're not interested in what you're doing in your bathroom or under your sheets. They're, they don't have those attachments, but they are right here. And the more they embrace their process or the more we embrace our process as a corrective process and the evolution of the soul, then when we move into the soul world, which our prayer says that it's for the world beyond, right? We're elevating ourselves for the world beyond. Well, the more we elevate ourselves for what we're there, we can be so much more helpful to the people that are going through this process. That's now I understand, even though I was a medium, now that my father's gone, I understand why it says that in the Torah that the Jews will come back from the the bones of their dead. Nobody's coming back out of the ground. It's we who will be aware of the world, of the soul world, and we will be able to see our loved ones like I see them because I don't have an exclusive. We're all like this. So you're saying when what we call Messiah, Mashiach, comes, everybody will become psychic. Everybody will become soulfully aware. Soulfully aware. They will start to use their soul's attributes, which are bigger than their physical attributes. We all rely on our intellect and our conditioned way of being in the human experience. If we start to rely on the attributes of the soul, I mean... I can see beyond this reality. I talk to dead people. I can locate anything. I've solved murders. Uh, I've healed people from severe illness, myriads of them. I've found treasure. I found oil wells and gold mines, which means it's my soul that does that. It's not Vlad. I have a ninth grade education. You understand? I can align myself to any building or any computer system and tell you in detail, any car, anything. So when, you, when we start to value the soul's attributes, we truly understand that we're, we're souls going through a human experience. It's a bleep. And you are saying that every person has the potential to, to, to have these experiences. And our limitations are what? Attachment to physical world and... You know how we have a trip? Uh, it's, a, it's our birthright. We're souls first. The soul is the driving force of the body. So then how, how is it possible that I haven't and you don't? We're all like this. I have a bigger head than you, so what? That doesn't mean you have a different soul. It doesn't mean anything. You read more books, it doesn't mean anything. You have a soul and I have a soul. So the, the more you're attached to physical reality and its definitions, then you're defined by those definitions. And so you, you feed and, and are attached to conditioned uh, statistics and uh, 
possibilities that are defined by the human experience and its limitations. Or let's say people who uh, believe in astrology. Astrology is fantastic. It's an incredible science. But it's not, it doesn't define us. It didn't create it. It doesn't develop your soul. It gives you intellectual understanding of a certain reality. It has limitations. We are not defined by astrology. It didn't create us. So the moment we understand that there's a creative force and it's constantly engaged and we engage it through action and fuel our souls, well, then we live as souls with a brighter light in the human experience. And then we're not confined by the human uh, lack of possibility. Let's see if we can <clears throat> help those and, you know, a lot of people are listening to us now. So there is a big possibility that somebody has in their life somebody who is dying. What would you say would be the most helpful way to act? Helpful to the person who is dying and helpful to the person who is a caretaker? Uh, I mean, everybody's process and conditions are different. I'll tell you what I did. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't let my father suffer. I was on top of the medical community constantly because they go through protocol. They push them out of this world. They, they kill everybody that comes to the hospital. That's not, that's, that's not me being against the medical community. It's just protocol. Oh, he's reacting. He doesn't want his blood taken. Sedate him. In his sedation, he's deteriorating. While he's deteriorating, more things happen. Uh, his blood pressure goes up and down. His uh, saturation goes up and down. His, his, it's constant. So they medicate you to such an extent where you, where you have no strength to come back. Emotionally, physically, it destroys the person that's not well. Emotionally, it, it creates severe ups and downs. So not, what I would say is not to feed into the severe ups and downs because those ups and downs are a part of that person's process. The moment we insinuate that their process should be different, we take the role of God. So the best you can do is stay on top of the medical community. If they're in a hospital, if they're not well, stay on top of them. Because if you let them do what they want, you lose your loved ones. It's very fast. For example, uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross may she rest in peace and continue her journey also on the other side. She would literally sit with the patient who was dying or near death and just love them and, and listen to them. Let them speak, let them express themselves. Uh, rather than, you know, very often, no, 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 you will be fine, you will be fine, you will recover. Right. Well, you know, um, I've been in situations as a healer and a medium, so I can tell you I've seen people, I, I have an example, um, I got a call from a woman in New Mexico whose child, a 19-year-old, was shot through the center of his head by a sniper in Afghanistan. And he was in a coma. And she basically, she said, look, uh, uh, I helped solve a homicide in New Mexico. And he, she called me and said, listen, New Mexico homicide referred me. I don't know what you do, but whatever it is, just do it because I'm not shutting my child off. 
I prayed and the kid had a tear come out of his eye in 45 minutes he woke up. He's now this official spokesman for Wounded Warrior in New Mexico. So you, you, can't, you can't say, no, don't be overly optimistic because it's their belief system that created their experience to begin with. If they're willing to work on themselves, if people are willing, regardless of what kind of illness they have, you can pull them out and, and yes, be optimistic. And most importantly, pray. Praying allows you not to be conditioned by the diagnosis and to be conditioned by the lack of possibility based on statistics. They're not statistics. I've seen people get up. I've seen people do all kinds of things, regardless of what they have. Terminal, non-terminal, it's all nonsense. Yeah, but also there is time when a person is ready to go. The body deteriorated to the degree that it's beyond repair. Mm-hmm. So if if you don't mind, kind of uh, speak a little bit about this process. How to, as I said, how to make it easier um, for a person to transition. I think understanding makes it easier. Understanding um, conscious spirituality, not contrived spirituality. The difference is explaining, even if you don't know, finding um, a way to explain to a person how the soul transitions, what they can do, that they can pray, that they can participate in their well-being, or they can participate in transitioning. Because sometimes the body's so attached to the human experience and its pain, I've prayed for someone who was sick for six months from cancer and never moved. I prayed for the kid. He went up to his room, went to sleep, and never woke up. He transitioned as a result of prayer. So there's really nothing to say. You can't, you can't, I don't know if it's, it's appropriate to prepare a living person to die, but describing, speaking about factual conscious understanding, how reality works, helps them understand that it's okay maybe to let go. That's, that's exactly the help. Yeah, maybe it's it's okay to understand that the soul uh, removes itself from its costume and transitions into the spiritual realm. And the prayers, I got to tell you, you know, sitting Shiva did something for me. You know, we have a ritual in Judaism, uh, seven days. It really did something. I mean, I'm not over it by any means, but it gave me a chance to recover. It's not for him. It's for me. I'm the one missing him. He's right here, and he knows he's right here. You understand? It's me who doesn't see him because he's no longer physical. So I don't live in a soul existence constantly, but as long as you continue to raise your vibration and refine your understanding of how humanity works for, the, for, for average folks. Now you remember, uh, I don't want to say her name, Lynn, in my class. She kept saying the seven, seven weeks that I taught the mediumship development class, she kept saying, no, I can't do it, I can't do it. She was the one that was the most concrete, the chiropractor. Yes, yes, yes. Right? She, she saw the guy who was murdered, that was part of the project, and she talked to him. At least she described him, where he died, how he died, what he wore, everything. So we're all capable of that. And while a person is moving on to the next step, 
it's never uh, for family members. It's it's never a time where you you say, okay, that's it. I never. I knew my father was transitioning, but I couldn't speak to him. He was already so sedated and so out of it. And I knew he wanted to leave. He didn't feel productive here. He was very sick. He had all kinds of problems. So I'm not going to inspire him to leave, but. I helped him. I prayed for him. I sat with him. I talked to him. I explained how things work in reality, in this reality and the next. So educate yourself. Also, Kubler Ross wrote uh, that very often uh, people who are transitioning they have a lot to say, but nobody kind of is, listen, is listening because they say, "Oh, this person is dying," but they have a lot to say even uh, about going back and forth yeah. but because they feel nobody will listen nobody will trust them they they don't talk about it no they're absolutely in between worlds they're about to transition into the next step and really you know they don't go into the next world right away so there's uh, people that are severely sick or or die um, through uh, murder or, or incidents or car accidents, they don't pass into the next reality right away. So they, they linger in the human experience. So then if a person's in the hospital and they're gradually dying, they definitely have access to the other side. And when they start saying that they see things, they do. They see their relatives because now they're shedding the material uh, body and their energy is becoming more in alignment to those that have left. So it's not a, this, you know, this kumbaya spirituality, these books about, uh, oh, they're your guides. They're not your guides. They're just kindred souls that already have acclimated to the other side and they're going through their process. And you encounter them because now you're becoming a soul. I, I, again, I don't have direct experience as you do, but I read books by people who had that near-death experience and came back. And as I said in the beginning, uh, near-death is not death. But they indeed uh, said that, that when people move to the other side, they are welcomed first by the family, and then there is somebody who is their guide. Literally, a guide assigned to them, it may be a relative or not, and taking them through, uh, I, uh, I would say, uh, like not showroom, but like uh, video or rooms where they can. Exactly. Do you remember that movie with Meryl Streep? Yes. Oh, defending your life. Al Albert Brooks. Yeah. Defending your life. Yes. It's, I mean, it's close. Uh, I, look, I've encountered people who had near-death experiences. There's a, an interesting, actually, somebody from our community, Anava. He speaks, uh, he lectured, he had a near-death experience. Yeah, There's Alon, a guy, huh? Alon Anava. Right. There's one guy uh, in, um, in five towns in New York who had a near-death, who saw the river. I did it while awake. And I, I'm not saying it's better or worse, but I've learned how to uh, value the disembodied life. And I learned how to value this one. And I understand the difference. And 
the the value in being able to see the other side. It's not as if they give you guidance. They do have a clearer view of what's happening, but we're not sustained by disembodied souls. Our souls are sustained by the source of all life, which is God. So then the moment we make it a habit, or we think that there are guides, as some books would insinuate, uh, it's a lie. It's an absolute, you're, it's, a, you're it's not. not true. And it is not intended for us to interact with them constantly. I'm, I don't lead with mediumship anymore. I can't do it. And it's very precise and very specific. It's, but only if I see that a person requires or is carrying a burden unresolved with a parent or a child or something. I, and I don't call them. If it's intended for them to resolve, that person will show up and, and tell me specific facts about the person who's sitting in front of me. But for me, I never, uh, you know, mediumship opened uh, for me really intensely at 30, if you remember. And I, my, I had my eyes peeled 12 hours, 13, 14 hours a day because I thought it's my eyes that see it. And I was attached to it, and I was attached to being right. And you'll find that very often mediums are attached to being right because they see something 98% of the population doesn't see. The truth is they don't see anything. They're receiving increments of, of tidbits of information just to confirm to the sitter that, they're, that it's actually the person that they want to speak to. So, so when, when a medium claims to see, the way they can expand their abilities and go beyond mediumship is that if they personally work on the refinement of their soul. And so then the conversation with the world beyond becomes more concrete and they're not tidbits of information. It's more, has more continuity and it's very full. It's like mine and yours. I want to always ask you, never had a what you know from your experience. And I will tell you my understanding, and you tell me if your experience can, corresponds with what I, what I understand on the intellectual experience. My understanding is in the world of spirit, there is no image. There is only consciousness. And consciousness doesn't have image. They had, just like, for example, love, you feel love, but if you want to have uh, connect with your love, then you have to invoke an image. You, you think of someone you love, but love itself is a feeling. It, it cannot touch it. You cannot taste it. You cannot wait. So my, my perception of how that reality exists, it's just pure consciousness. But when they want to appear to us, so we would recognize that it's them. Then they put, like your daughter said, costume. They put a garment of their choice. For example, like when my mother was coming, <laughs> I was already 55, and my mother was showing up at, um, looking like, because she liked to be a nurse, in a white coat, and she was 40. <laughs> the, the most important image that taught me about manifestation was your father because when he appeared for me he had both arms oh. your father had didn't have his right arm right. and 
whenever I saw him, I saw him complete, which okay. means the soul yeah. manifests an attribute to you as a person going through a human experience, something that you can recognize that is them and it's complete because as a soul, they're complete. If you don't mind, I would like, uh, I'm interviewing you, but I would like to share with a little anecdote of the experience that I had with you. And I don't know if you remember it. After in 1999, I, I remember when, when we were at the cemetery and you said, grandma says, I, I don't have lipstick and where is my coat? Where is my coat? So uh, after that, and remember I lived in Rockland County and Aaron was like nine months old and he started walking. He walked at a very young age. And we were concerned that he will go up the steps and, and fall. So and many people know you, you put baby gates, uh, like you screw one side to one uh, pole and the other side to another pole. And I was, you know, it was five, seven days or eight days after mom died. So my mind was somewhere else. And I completely... I, I attached one part on one level, the other one, and then only when they were attached, I saw that they don't match. And at that moment, you called. Uh, again, I don't remember, know if you remember. You called, and you say, how are you? And I say, okay. <laughs> I say, why are you calling? And he said, mom, grandma wanted me to call and check up on you because, like, you are sad, too much sad. And I said, what do you mean? She is, um, she is with you? And you said, yes, yeah, she is with me and she is with you. And like I said, I don't understand. How can she be with me and here? And you said, wait a minute, she is saying something. Um, she is saying something like, you made a mistake. You have to pay attention. And what she was doing is, you, you did not know what I was doing, that I was putting the baby gates, and she wanted to show me that she saw that I screwed up. So do you remember this? I remember um, an experience. I just don't remember specifically, but you know, they, people always in mediumship, they expect, oh, what does my father say? Or what does my mother say? And what does she want to warn me? It's, it's uh, they don't warn. There's, they're, they're not, uh, unfortunately, the people that claim to do, to have mediumistic ability, they lead with warning. They want to be your, your guide and warn you about disaster. But they are aligned to your concerns. So what she was aligned to, that you were concerned, Aaron, was wild. And if you didn't put a gate up, he'd have been down the stairs head first. But she so, said you so, mismeasured, right? Mismeasured. She's so because that's your concern. It's not their concern that he might fall because they don't live in the future. They don't create fears about outcomes. We do. So then her concern was aligned to yours. And that's why she said to me, He's he mismeasured me. Tell him to correct it. And you mismeasured and you measured correctly and it was fine. So uh, it, it, it's, it has to do a lot with, um, you know, people are hoping that somehow the unseen world or the spiritual world will give them the, 
the six numbers for the lottery or, or warn them against some sort of disaster. Uh, unfortunately, everyone's constantly waiting for disaster and um, instead of waiting for the best and the highest possibilities. And that's where we will be able to connect with the higher realm more effectively when we stop limiting our possibilities and conditioning our outcomes and waiting for disaster. Know anything about people who commit suicide? What happens? You're gonna laugh. It's not funny, but uh, in my late twenties, I studied at the William Esper Studios in New York City. It's a very cool acting school. It's become even more sought after. It's the every, uh, it's the um, uh, I think. Stella Adler and William Esper are the most kind of uh, the best schools in New York, unless you're, you study acting in college. And I was in class, I was attending, and I was in class, and um, I saw Harvey Villanchez. I don't know if you remember, in the 80s, there was a series on television called Fantasy Island. He was a little guy. Yes, the, the short guy, the... Right. Too. Boss, the plane, the plane. Right. His, name, his name was Harvey Villanchez. He, he committed suicide. He slid his wrists and, and sat in the bathtub until he bled out. And he came to me in class and followed me around for three days and taught me about suicide and what happens. Uh, what, what did he tell you? He explained that the, um, uh, <laughs> I heard this woman, I talked to this guy whose daughter fell to her death off the side of a mountain and he runs a huge non-for-profit for people who lost their kids through suicide and through overdoses and they invited some woman who claimed she was a medium and she said, oh, those who committed suicide will go through eternal damnation. So, oh my God, why did you invite her to say this to these people? Nobody goes to eternal damnation. It's nonsense. What did this guy tell? So it's, it's absolute nonsense. What he told me was that because the decision is made by the physical body to end the process, the, the body is going through a process where it's emotionally and intellectually unaware that there is a soul. When you know you have a soul, you don't shorten your process. You don't quit school, right? So when you take the medicine or shoot yourself or throw yourself out of a window, you end your process, which is also a part of your process because everything is a spiritual process, right? So then the, the soul disconnects from the body and it's um, confused for a while. It refuses to accept that it's in spiritual form in the physical experience. So imagine it's hard enough to be here as a body. Life is difficult. Imagine being here in spirit form when nobody else can hear you. And you replay the last moments of your physical life over and over again until those people that we know as relatives or family that have passed on 
gradually transition you by constantly reminding you that you're now a soul. And they transition. They, they all transition. It's a lie. There is no eternal damnation. It's nonsense. They all transition. Sometimes some take more time than others. Just a part of the process. Yeah, it's just part of the process. It is their process. So suicide was part of their process. And more importantly, part of that family's process. Because very often the, the, the family is spiritually unaware. When you teach your children that everything is a soul and there is a God and that there is an uh, external force that sustains us, that you, you can't take your own life, then you don't do it. Because there's an awareness, there's an understanding. Now, you communicate with souls and they go to the other side. I don't know about other traditions, frankly, but I know in Judaism, uh, the belief is that here, and I understand it's a one human year, uh, a one year, there is a trial, that is, um, there is evaluation, I don't know by whom, I'm not a scholar of Judaism, I'm just a like, little student, uh, but, but from what I understand, uh, I heard a number of rabbis use this term, maybe real scholars go in depth, but, but those who are just regular rabbis say, uh, you go through one year transition, where you are evaluated by other souls and you are evaluating yourself as a soul. Is, 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 is it also your experience, your understanding, or you go somehow, your, your understanding is different from what the Hebrew tradition? I don't know about the year because in, in, in spiritual experience there's no space or time. So I don't know how they calculated the time of a year. But uh, the calculation and the knowledge of rabbis comes directly from the Torah, which is the technological manual for humanity. So I, I believe that's, if that's where they got it, then that's, it's technologically and consciously correct because it came directly from the source. So then we have to accept that there is a, uh, a time that's interpreted into the human terms that it takes to transition into your place. But transition into what? <laughs> the frying pan? No. <laughs> you transition into spiritual life and another realm of reality where you continue your pro spiritual process. I've talked to souls the same day they left and they were fine. And I talked to souls 40 days after they left and they couldn't communicate. They still haven't accepted their reality. They haven't accepted that they have moved on from the human experience. So I don't know about the year. I don't, I, I don't know. Somebody is now going through what you've been through, sitting Shiva. Somebody lost, and, and I know in Christian tradition also there is seven days and then 30 days and so on. Uh, what would you to, to ease their pain and grief? And I also, by the way, before, before you start answering, 
I believe that it's a, it's a, as, as a therapist, it's a very healing process to actually embrace the grief and stay with it and allow yourself to feel. But is there any anything else you would like to add to or you, what you believe, or maybe you believe something contrary to what I say? What would be helpful to a person who is going through grief now of losing loved ones? To allow themselves to happen, what you said. Yeah. Absolutely to allow yourself to experience it, because if you don't, it'll ooze out somewhere else. It'll come out somewhere else. And it's when you are not emotionally resolved or unsettled about the passing of a loved one, you carry that and that understanding then disturbs how you affect your human experience, meaning you take your unresolved emotions with you in the, your interactions in your life and you start to affect your reality with those emotions. So uh, somehow my father and God are in alignment because I went through the majority of my shiva trapped in my car. I, I drove back from New York City after burying him. It took me five days because I was with relatives and I had to drive. I drove back for two and a half days. I was encased in a vehicle. I couldn't go anywhere, do anything, talk to anyone. I just had my wife and my child. And so it really made me experience the loss. I couldn't call him every day. I would watch videos of dancing, people that dance Russian folk dances, and I would want to call him. I'd, all of a sudden, I'd start crying randomly. You know, I, I wear this thing that he had on for 40 years. Uh, it, it's, it's transition. It transition, it, and it doesn't become easier. What changes is your acceptance. What the seven days allow you to accept and, you know, we say Kaddish, right? We say a prayer that people think it elevates the soul. No, it elevates us. Stop making, stop. Human beings are egomaniacal. They think they're the primary body. They're not. We're not. It's the soul that's the primary body. It's the soul that's the engine for the body. So we're not raising their vibration. We're raising our own. The prayer gives us a flow of energy and keeps us out of our memories and our attachment to the actual physical person. And the prayer saying the Kaddish is a, for Jews, I don't know what Christians and Catholics do or, or other religions, but the prayer is a key that ignites the flow, which soothes your understanding and, and helps you accept that they've moved on and physically you will not see them again. That's hard, but it's uh, the acceptance and being still and not jumping back into work and jumping into fam familial affairs and, and bills. You have to take your time. Otherwise, you pay the price. Pay the price physically. Now it's exactly it's exactly seven days. Um, that's it. Over today. Um, Feel that these seven days uh, made a big change for you. Yeah. You feel or I feel? Are you asking me? You, I'm asking you. Yeah, for sure. Tremendous, tremendous. Yesterday I was still in pieces. I would start all of a sudden 
Like out of nowhere, I'd start, I'd get emotional. My kids came home and they, they missed their grandfather. When is he coming back? And I have a five-year-old who's constantly asking for her grandpa. He's a huge part of her life. My son's here from university. Theo's here with me. He's, he came, sat chiller with me. He, he's, he misses, he says, Dad, it's not the same as for you, it's your father. But it's my grandfather, he's not here. That acceptance, that transition, that time, it gives you an opportunity to accept. And then at some point you say, okay, I get it. I'm ready to start functioning. It's, I went to tr try to train today and um, it was hard. Yeah. It's, I kind of want to listen to music. My kids asked me to put on a song and I drove them to school today. I said, I can't listen to music. I just can't. My wife asked me to go to a hockey game. I'm not interested. So basically you say the most important is for one person is to be, to stay yes. what they feel is the right feeling. Avoiding is not, is not the answer. Yes. Yeah. It'll come out somewhere. Yeah, we, we are, we're actually coming to an end of this for our, is there anything else you would like to, to say to people who possibly, uh, a lot of people are afraid of death. Um, in fact, there was a wonderful psychiatrist, Irving Yalom, who believed that, I don't share, by the way, this, his belief, but, but he believed that uh, the source of all mental disturbances, mental illnesses, is our fear of death. Uh, what, what, what would you say to people who are afraid to die, afraid, I, I know a client who calls, in fact, uh, he is afraid to get COVID because he may die, or, and, and it's like haunting him. What would you, what would be uh, your word for them? Live your life every day as if it were your last. Enjoy every moment. Stop worrying about something you can't see and don't know when it's coming. You can't prevent it. You can't predict it. You can't prepare for it. When you're ready and it's over. 3,000 people in the World Trade Center thought they were secure. They were in those big buildings. People that worked for Cantor Fitzgerald, they worked for a very successful uh, uh, brokerage firm. They, their, their wealth secured them. The building secured them. Nothing secured them. I know 40 people that didn't show up to work that day. I worked right there across the street, 112 Liberty Street. And I didn't show up. And, and my ex-wife didn't show up. She called in sick. So when it's your time, you can prepare all you want. You, buy, you can walk around with a parachute if you want. Or a helmet. Or three masks. And spray uh, uh, alcohol on your hands all day long. When you're ready to leave, nothing will stop you. So you can't prepare for it. But you have to make, I have to say, reasonable precautions. Uh, you know, Arabs have a very nice saying, trust in Allah, but don't forget to tie the camel to the tree. You, you still have to obey traffic lights and right. you still to wash your hands after you go to the bathroom. So when, don't feed into a contrived staged event because all of a sudden now all the mandates are gone. Now the new focus is Putin and Ukraine. 
So don't feed into staged events. If you take care of your health and you have a spiritual life and you feed your soul and you're healthy, you're not smoking cigarettes and drinking alcohol and sitting in worry. Even if you do get COVID, you'll get through it like me and you did. You understand? And wearing six masks and spraying yourself and wearing a helmet and forcing your kids to wear masks, that's the staged event by those other people that are preparing you for war now. Vladimir, thank you. Thank you so much. As always, it's very enlightening. Uh, I, I'm with you. Um, I was there. So healing for me. I really appreciate it. You did it. Somebody, somebody upstairs really likes me because they gave you to me in my life. And you always come up with these. This is a very healing process. I get to speak out what I need to hear for myself. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much. God bless. I'll speak to you soon. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, our hour came to an end. Um, if you are interested in listening again or you want somebody to listen to this show it will be posted on my um whatever it's called archives um and i'm looking forward to your emails something i wanted to say regarding the emails i as remember i, I ask you to send me emails the only thing is please don't send emails that are five, six pages, because I, you know, it just happened that I received four emails and each was like five, six pages. It would take me hours to, to process it. If you want to send an email, send a page the most essential, at least to get into conversation with me. And then we'll see if we want to continue the conversation. But, um, I want to wish you a wonderful week and I'm looking forward to have your attention uh, next Tuesday. Um, peace to all who want to live in peace.